ಓಂಹರೀ ಪರಮಂದೇಷ್ಟಾರೀಶ್ವರ So we are studying this little book written by Shankaracharya some 14 centuries ago. Shankaracharya was one of India's greatest saint philosophers. Aparokshanubhuti. And we are at the section where he is showing us how we are not the body. The self and the body are distinct. That is the subject that is being discussed now. Why do we need to know this? You see, any, the term used is sadhana. Any instrument, any method is necessary only to achieve certain results. So only when you want the results, then the method or the instrument has value. You want to come here. Then only, whether you'll come by your own car or take a Uber or you'll come by public transport, all that, these questions are relevant. The method, the instrument becomes relevant only when you want something, you want a result out of it. Now for whom is this, this, this teaching, for whom is it meant? For those who want to overcome suffering in this life and attain permanent bliss, for them this is relevant. Jnana, spiritual knowledge. For those who want to overcome, to, to get beyond this cycle of birth and death. For those who want to overcome the limitations inherent in our human conditions. For those who love the infinite. This is very interesting. We had a visitor here last week, a monk from distant Vrindavan. And this monk told us that he became a monk after being influenced by his guru, who was a mystic. And the way he described his guru was, he was a lover of the infinite. So when we are lovers of the infinite, maybe we do not have that mystical experience yet, but the very idea appeals to us, transcending limitations. It's only when we want to transcend limitations, then this is useful. For such a person who wants to go beyond birth and death, who wants to transcend suffering, who wants to attain bliss, spiritual bliss, that person must know that he or she is not this body. The self is not the body. So that is the discussion which is going on from 17th verse to the 33rd verse. We have started from the 17th verse and we have done the 18th also. So the subject, this topic will continue up to the 33rd verse where by means of appeal to experience, empirical evidence, the evidence of our own lives, something that we cannot deny, appeal to experience and to logic, the author wants to demonstrate to us that we are not the bodies. Right here, right now, we are not these bodies. Now let's come to the 19th verse. We have done up to 17 and 18 and the 19th verse, the same subject. How am I not the body? I sort of take it without question that I am the body. Well, convince me. I'm open to being convinced. Show me that I'm not this body. Atma jnana maya punyo 
ಆತ್ಮಜ್ಞಾನಮಯ ಪುಣ್ಯೋ ದೇಹೋ ಮಾಂಸಮಯೋಶುಚಿ ದೇಹೋ ಮಾಂಸಮಯೋಶುಚಿ ತಯೋರೈಕ್ಯಂ ಪ್ರಪಶ್ಯಂತಿ ತಯೋರೈಕ್ಯಂ ಪ್ರಪಶ್ಯಂತಿ ಕಿಮಜ್ಞಾನಂತಃಪರಂ ಕಿಮಜ್ಞಾನಂತಃಪರಂ Atman is a knower. It is all consciousness, it is all knowledge. The self is the knower and hence pure. The body is a, a mixture of flesh and blood and tissues and all sorts of gooey, wet, wet stuff. It would be a mess if it were not covered by this tightly in this bag of skin, you know. So, ashuti impure it's made of flesh and blood and bones and so on to think that the self is the body when they have such opposite characteristics what greater ignorance can there be so this is the translation of the verse and what is the argument here the atman the self is the knower let's dwell on this for just a brief while what is our experience about ourselves in every experience of life one thing is common we have always seen ourselves as the experiencer we have always been the knower the experiencer you had a happy experience and a, an un, a pleasant experience you were the one who experienced it goes without saying we never think about that but always i am the one who experiences and what happens in life is something that is experienced i am never an object of experience my body is an object of experience i feel my body especially when it is sick or ill or giving me trouble then i do feel it in fact i feel it more than anything else you see how how tragic it is and how strange it is that the slightest cut or bruise on my foot causes me more worry and anxiety and pain then the greatest tragedy half a world away where thousands of people may die but i feel this more directly so the object the body is definitely an object of experience we always experience the body or at least a lot of times we we are experiencing the body we feel it if the body is an object of experience we are the experiencer the experiencer and the experienced are two different entities entities so we are the knower in every situation the knower is always the self simple example you are sitting here and listening to this talk the talk is what you experience and who is the experiencer you you are the one who experiences sound and light and color all of this is experienced by you that is not experiencing you the sounds and light and color are not experiencing the self the self is always experiencing everything else is the simplest most basic fact that is the structure of experience the self is always the knower and the non self is not nonsense non self <laughs> the non self is the known and that's always so almost by definition it is so and he points out this atma gyanamaya if you are the knower you must be all consciousness it's only consciousness which knows awareness sentience that is what knows and the body is a a body of flesh and blood and bones 
He calls it impure. Knowledge is pure. We'll dwell on more on that later on. But the body is impure. And this is a theme which you find in um, many religions. In fact, all religions to some extent or the other. It's not fashionable anymore. We are worshippers of the body beautiful. Especially here in California. You must have a fit and beautiful body. And that's good. It's good to have a fit and beautiful body. But remember the nature of the body. In Buddhism, there are so many meditations. One of the meditations, a particularly difficult and gruesome one is, is uh, they sit in the sit for meditation in the cremation grounds. In, in India, they burn the bodies. So they sit for meditation in the cremation ground. And if a body is not burned, it just lays there. And they watch it decay over days. As it swells up and maggots come into it and it decays and putrefies and sinks into a messy goo. You sit and watch. Hour after hour after hour. And see what's happening to the body. That is the nature of the body. That is the very nature of the body. It is matter which is subject to decay and death. All the time when we are living, it is the life forces within this body which are struggling a day and night battle against death. We with our mo modern understanding of the immune system, we know how this body, each body, is continuously battling invaders from inside and outside which are seeking to damage and destroy the body. The immune system is always fighting a perpetual war. So the nature of the body is impure. We, let me be gross, and I'm not doing it on purpose, it's, I'm quoting an ancient text, Sureshwaracharya's Naishkarmya Siddhi. We, who can't tolerate the slightest mess, you know, slightest bit of mess, something that smells bad, something that's messy, ugly looking, we can't tolerate it. We have a sense of beauty, a proportion, taste. And yet, what lies just beneath the skin of this body? What lies right, as they say, what we carry around in our stomachs all day and night. We never think about it. If anybody speaks about it, it's offensive. But we do that. And when a person excretes it, it immediately becomes something dirty, unthinkable, unmentionable, would not look at it, let alone even touch it. And that's what we carry around with ourselves throughout our lives. The moment it leaves our body, it's unmentionable. And yet just one second ago, it was part of me, it was me. And yet you are consciousness, you are the knower, the experiencer. Shankaracharya says, how can you make them one? How can you make these two one? The knower and the known, the knower and the known object. One is pure, that consciousness or knowledge is pure, we shall dwell on that. And the body is definitely Something that you yourself, it would offend your sensibilities if it was set out in front of you in a plate. The contents of this body. You'd, we'd all prob probably throw up if you see, see what's, what's inside the body. So, taking them to be one, the knower and the known, we take them to be one all the time. The pure and the impure, we take them to be one all the time. What can be greater ignorance than this? They are not one. We are confusing them, mixing them up because of ignorance. We do not separate ourselves into the self and the non-self. 
We, we combine the self and the body together and say, I. So, the next verse. 20th. Atma Prakashaka Swacha Atma Prakashaka Swacha Dehastamasa Uchyate Dehastamasa Uchyate Tayo Raikyam Prapashyanti Tayo Raikyam Prapashyanti Kimagyanam Atafparam Atma is the illuminer and it is pure. Swacha means pure or clear. Deha, body. He calls body tamasa. It is darkness itself. Tayoraikyam, light and darkness. We combine them together. We say it's one thing. I say this body is I. Light is pointing to darkness and saying that's me. What greater ignorance, what greater foolishness can there be? Let's try to understand it. There is a commentary written on this book. The book itself was written some 14 centuries ago by Shankaracharya. The commentary on this was written by Vidyaranya about 700 years ago. And the commentator says, Sanskrit, Atma Swayam Prakashasan Suryadivad Anya Sarva Prakashakaha Atayeva Swacha Atman is self-luminous, like the sun. The sun illumines everything. And the sun, sun is pure. In what sense is it pure? You see, when light falls on something, light may fall on, um, on ditch water. You look at flashlight, you see a ditch water. And then you see maybe a jar full of holy water. The light which falls on the ditch water does not become impure because it's falling on something impure. The light which is falling on the, on the holy water does not become any further holy or anything like that. The light is not affected by what it illumines. The light may, as somebody said, um, the policeman who's patrolling in an Indian village at night and he has a flashlight. A flashlight is high tech. Uh, yes, now maybe not these days. Uh, there are mobiles everywhere, but uh, I remember this old gentleman who said the most high-tech thing that in their village was a flashlight, which was given to the, the watchman of the village by the government. So people used to come from other houses to see the flashlight. And so the, imagine there's no electricity and at night the watchman is patrolling the village and he sees something in the dark and he... Um, switch it on the flashlight and he sees it's a monk, a sadhu under a tree and meditating. All right. He passes on, sees something moving fishily in the, in the dark and he, and he switches on the flashlight and he sees it's, a, it's a, a robber, a thief trying to sneak in somewhere and presumably he nabs the robber. But the flashlight, is, the light is not affected by illumining a sadhu, is not affected by illumining a thief. So in that sense, Light is not affected but by what it shines upon. Consciousness is not affected by what it is aware of. Consciousness, what it illumines, what it reveals, 
It might be good, it might be bad. It might be uh, dharma, it might be adharma. You know, religion and irreligion, good and bad, moral and immoral. But the consciousness itself is not affected by any of this. In this sense, it is said to be swacha. Swacha means pure, clear. Does not matter what it reveals. What it reveals may be good or bad, but that which reveals is not affected by that. Now, think about it. Consciousness is the light of lights. Here, the, when the room was dark, you switch on the light, you can see everything. So light is the revealer. But this light and the room it reveals is known by your eyes. It would not be cognized. It would not be known except for you seeing it. So your eyes are the light which reveals this light and the room. And your eyes seeing something, that will work only when your mind is on what you are seeing. So mind is connected to the eyes. In that sense, mind is the light which reveals your eyes. Eyes are the light which reveal the external light. And external light is something that reveals this external room. Really your mind is the light for all of these lights. And your mind, according to the Upanishads, according to Vedanta, the contents of our minds are revealed by the consciousness shining in the mind. So consciousness in the mind is the light of lights. In that sense, consciousness is said to be prakashaka, revealer, the light of lights. We sing every day in our vesper. When we sing to the Lord in the evening vespers, we sing Jyoti Rajyoti. Light of lights. Jyoti Rajyoti. Um, therefore, this is the Vedantic conception of God. When we are singing the Vespers to, to, to God in the evening, we are singing Jyoti Rajyoti, light of lights. The conception of God in Vedanta is this very light of lights. We are the consciousness which reveals all external lights. To repeat what I said, light reveals this room, your eyes reveal the light and the room, your mind reveals the eyes, the light and the room, and consciousness shines upon the contents of your mind, revealing all of that. Consciousness is the real light of lights. Ultimate light of lights is your consciousness. If this light is switched off, you may say, I cannot see anything without this light but that you cannot see anything, that fact also is revealed by your consciousness. Is it not? Think about it. Without consciousness, nothing will be revealed. To you, without your consciousness, nothing will be revealed. All lights may be on or lights may be switched off. Whatever happens in the world, whatever happens in the mind within ourselves, nothing is revealed without consciousness. With consciousness, the presence or absence of things external to consciousness are revealed. So this is what he is saying. Consciousness is the light of lights. It's Prakashaka, the illuminer. The real and only illuminer is consciousness. You may say, maybe for you, but there are so many illuminers in the world outside, apart from you. You see, the Vedantic perspective is a uniquely subjective perspective. You're in your experience. It always brings you back to yourself. Speak from your own experience. In your own experience, what is it that, that has always been illumining? Only your consciousness. 
Everything that you know, ever have experienced, has been illumined, revealed to you only by your consciousness. Nothing ever else. So, prakashaka swacha. Um, another point. When you keep saying pure, here is a subtle point to understand. When you keep say, when their books keep saying consciousness is pure, consciousness is pure. What does purity mean? In a very simple sense. A thing or a substance is said to be pure when it is unmixed with anything else. When there's a thing which is unmixed with anything else, we say that is pure. If it's mixed with one or two other different things, we say it's impure, it's a mixture. Now consciousness by itself is pure. Why? Because everything else is revealed by consciousness. If something were mixed with consciousness, if it were at all possible, you would have to reveal it with consciousness. Then it would be something apart from consciousness. Do you see this, this logic? Consciousness reveals everything. If there is something that is a mixture in consciousness, then if you, to know that also you need consciousness. So consciousness is that which reveals something which can be mixed in consciousness. That means it must be apart from consciousness. That which consciousness reveals must be apart from consciousness. If it even reveals something which is supposed to be mixed in consciousness by that very logic of revealing something, it will be something apart from consciousness and not mixed in consciousness. So by the very, by our very experience, by definition, consciousness has to be pure. In fact, it's the only thing that is pure. Swacha, pure. Another fact. All our experiences come and go in consciousness. You see, happiness, it comes in consciousness. We are aware of being happy. Misery, unhappiness, disappointment. We are aware of being disappointed. Now, the problem comes when we try to hold on to this happiness or misery. It's like a mirror trying to hold on to the reflection in the mirror. It's impossible because the mirror is trying to hold on to something which is not in the mirror. If, if a lake, a beautiful scenery, lake and trees and birds are reflected in the mirror and the mirror says, okay, I'll keep it here. It can't because a lake and a tree and the birds are not in the mirror. In the same way, all these things arise in consciousness. There's no problem with that. But the problem comes when the consciousness being deluded about its own nature says, I am happy, not I am aware of happiness in the mind. I am happy and I would like to remain so. Then only the problem arises. When the consciousness says it's part of me and I want to hold on to that happiness, the happiness which is a feeling in the mind, consciousness illumines that. And we are aware of being happy in the mind, which is a good feeling. But trying to hold on to that, there is delusion there. The arising of happiness and the subsiding of happiness, the arising of misery and the subsiding of misery in the mind is not a problem. Consciousness illumines both equally. The real problem comes when the consciousness appropriates those things to itself and says, I am happy. I am miserable. I want to drive this misery away. I want to keep this happiness. Neither the happiness nor the misery are really in consciousness. That which is not really in consciousness, which consciousness is only illumining, Consciousness cannot keep it on, cannot hold on to it, because it was never there. 
that which is re not really in consciousness, the feeling of misery in the mind, if it is not really there in consciousness, consciousness was only illumining it, consciousness cannot drive it away from itself also, because it's not there. How can you drive away something that's not there? How can you wash away the blue color of the sky? There's no blue color to be washed away. It just looks like that. So, all things, everything that we are aware of, arises in consciousness and disappears in consciousness, but they do not belong to consciousness. They are apart from consciousness. Time, space, and every object, desha, kala, vastu. We are aware of time. We are aware of the passing of time. By this logic, then time is an object of our consciousness. Time is not in consciousness or of consciousness. Consciousness must therefore transcend time. Place, here and there, near and far, we are aware of it. Hence, it's an, it's an object of our awareness. It does not apply to consciousness. It, consciousness is not in space. Space is in consciousness. Consciousness is not something moving through time. Time is something that appears and changes before consciousness. And all objects which consciousness similarly is aware of or illumines, they must be apart from consciousness. Consciousness is their illuminer. They are not they are not really connected to consciousness or they are not one with consciousness. Consciousness is the witness of all objects. Consciousness is the witness of all time. Consciousness is the witness of all space. In this case, to say, for consciousness to say that I am this particular body is the grossest of misunderstandings. When the whole of space and time and object appears to consciousness, to pick out one part of that and say, I am this. That's what Shankaracharya says. How ridiculous is that? Dehastamasa. The nature of body is darkness in the sense that body is something that is an object of knowledge. Body is not something that knows. You see, we think that the body is something that is aware of other things. It's only because consciousness percolating through the mind and the nervous system flowing through the body, we feel that this body is conscious. Consciousness shines upon the mind, mind becomes filled with consciousness. So we, we feel a mind full of awareness. And the mind being connected to the body, the body also feels conscious. And therefore we see, here I am. And we make a mistake by thinking, I am a body with consciousness. The book tells us, you are consciousness aware of a body. You are consciousness using a body. You are consciousness channeling yourself through a body. You are not a body with consciousness. You can even say you are consciousness in which a body is appearing and acting and feeling and knowing. And the challenge is to see it as a fact, not as a claim. Vedanta says, what it, what it is saying now is actually truer to our experience than what we normally talk, the tale we tell ourselves. That I am a body with consciousness is not as true as saying, as far as our experience goes, I am consciousness in which a body appears. Think about it. And throughout our day, right now, here is this body. The moment I go to sleep, the body disappears from my awareness. The body is in the bed, I am not aware of it. 
I am aware of a dream world in which I have a dream body and I do dream things in, in the dream world. What continues? Consciousness. You are aware. You, the awareness continues from the waking state, state into the sleep state into the dream state. The body is left behind from your awareness. So, it is more logical to say from, the, from your own point of view that your body drifts in and out of your awareness. Rather than, I am a body in which consciousness comes and goes. Our experience is telling us that. But we, we take a material point of view and say, I am a body which is sometimes conscious and sometimes sleeping. That's the tale we tell ourselves. It's, it's uh, looking at it from outside of ourselves. So, the body is an object of awareness. It is darkness. He calls it darkness. And we to identify the two. Light calling itself darkness. Kimagyanam matafparam. What greater ignorance can there be when light calls itself darkness? The knower calls itself the known. Consciousness calls itself flesh and bone. What greater um, ignorance can there be? What greater foolishness can there be? The complete opposites. We ignore that and say, I am this body. It's a mistake. And uh, there is a saying, Pramadam vai mrityum maham bravimi. I say that mistake, error is death. Forgetfulness is death. Forgetfulness of our real nature is death. Pramadam vai mrityum. Pramada means error, a spiritual error. We make the fatal mistake of forgetting our true selves and connecting ourselves, identifying ourselves with this changing body. This body will die. If I am this body, I will die. If I am the consciousness in which the body appears and, and goes, then I am the consciousness which will also witness the death of this body. If I am the witness of the death of this body, the body will die. Whether you know yourself as consciousness or not, that will not, it'll not, it won't stop the death of the body. The body will grow old and uh, it will die. But consciousness will witness the death of this body also. That's the claim. Now, let's do one more. Atma nityo hi sadrupo Atma nityo hi sadrupo Deho nitya yasanmayaha Deho nitya yasanmayaha Tayo raikyam prapashyanti Tayo raikyam prapashyanti Kimagyanam matafparam Kimagyanam matafparam Atma nitya, the self is eternal Sadrupa why? Because it is the nature of existence. Deha, body, is non-eternal, subject to birth and death, creation and destruction. Why? Because it is an effect. It is asat, false. It's something to be understood. What he is saying here is very deep philosophy. Tayo raikyam prapashyanti. And people see them to be the one and the same thing. Kimagyanam matafparam. What greater ignorance can there be? Let's look at this carefully. Atma nityo hi sadrupo. The Atman 
is eternal because they say that through all the changes from birth to growth of the body to maturity to old age to decay to death these are all experienced by whom by the self so the body keeps changing from one state to another and presumably presumably it will die one day and the experience goes on so that which experiences the body we have a feeling that i was the i was the child i was the teenager i was the middle aged person i was the old person i am a very old person now i am the same i don't say there was somebody else who was a child somebody else who was a teenager now there is somebody else who is a middle aged person i don't say that i say i am the same person then i cannot be the body the body has changed so radically then i have a experience of being a continuity a conscious continuity now what guarantee is there that when the body dies this consciousness will not evaporate that's the question then the body dies it's only when the body is continuing that you feel that you are a continuous consciousness is a little bit of subtle bit of thinking you see every exchange we have experienced the experiencer experiences the change in the body so the experiencer is apart from what is experienced and to note any change the change must be something that is experienced it cannot be in the experiencer so any kind of change to be experienced must be apart from the experiencer and death or destruction is a change creation is a change i hope uh, you're following this it's a bit subtle of course if you're following it you might be outraged this is this <laughs> very radical way of thinking so if you experience it if it is something that can be experienced it must be apart from the experiencer the experiencer is always the consciousness death or birth are experiences they must be apart from the experience of the consciousness hence the consciousness is not born nor does it die so at this point students of logic should raise hands and say no 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 this doesn't work this is <laughs> but anyway that's one one way of looking at it and in fact that's what's happening that's what's happening you cannot speak of the destruction of the knower you cannot speak of it you cannot experience it Who would experience it? The knower must continue to experience it. Um, you say no, but we all experience people dying. But we see the destruction of the body. Nobody has ever seen the destruction of the knower. Not only that, I'll claim that nobody has, no one has yet seen the knower. Nobody has seen the subject or the knower or the experiencer. so the experiencer the subject out there you say no i am seeing so many experiences don't you say swami ji there so many experiences are sitting here we see only the body of the experiencer we see only the we hear only their language we see only their behavior we even their minds their thoughts we only infer it the whole problem of other mind in philosophy whether other people have minds or are they zombies <laughs> you we may think it's a funny topic it's a serious subject in philosophy 
they actually debate this. How do you know that other people have minds? You have access only to your own mind. Even more so, Vedanta will say, you have access only to your own consciousness. The knower never knows any other knowers. Have you thought of one thing? That all the time we use the same word to denote one, one object. If I say this is a glass, and you will all use the word a glass or, or a tumbler for this thing. A glass of water. And we all use the same words and we mean the same thing. Now, how is it that when each of us says the word I, we all mean different things? It seems so. Vedanta says even in that case, we are actually all mean the same thing. All of us when we say I, we, we think I, this is I and your I is different and his I is different and her I is different. Vedanta says ultimately all the I's they point to the one conscious reality. We are one consciousness, all of us. No, none of this consciousness, this consciousness is not an object for anybody else. I always denotes the subject and it's always singular. That's, that's a radical thing that Vedanta says. Anyway, now this continuous existence. I have a, this chain of reasoning, please follow it carefully. Um, this is based on the 16th verse of Bhagavad Gita, second chapter. Nasato vidyate bhavu, nabhavu vidyate sata. It's the philosophical heart of the entire Bhagavad Gita, as far as Advaita Vedanta is concerned. Philosophical heart of the entire Bhagavad Gita, chapter 2, 16th verse. I've chosen my words carefully. I did not say the spiritual heart or the practical heart or the devotional heart of the Bhagavad Gita. I'm saying philosophical heart of the Bhagavad Gita. What does it say? Basically, I'll tell you in a few words. Um, when we are boiling potatoes, um, the potato is hot. It's, it's boiling. It's being. It, it's hot. Does the heat belong to the potato? Is it an intrinsic property of the potato? We say a hot potato. <laughs> we use the term. But really, is our potatoes hot? No. The heat has been borrowed from the boiling water. The potato was cold when it was in the, in the refrigerator. And after some time, when you set it out on the plate, it will be become cold again, unless somebody eats it up first. So, potato does not have heat of its own. It's borrowed that heat. It's come from the boiling water in which it is being boiled. It, it's being, um, um, you know, when you're cooking it. And the boiling water, does it have heat of its own? So the potato has borrowed heat. And the, the characteristic of borrowing something is, it was not there earlier, it is there now, it will lose it very soon. The potato was not hot earlier, it is hot now, again it will lose the heat very soon. That's the characteristic of not having its intrinsic heat. The water from which it borrowed the heat, does the water have a heat of its own? It's a no, it borrowed it from the hot pan on which, in which the water is kept. The water was cold earlier, now it's bubbling, hot, it will become cold a little while later. So, it was cold earlier, it is hot now, it will become cold a little while later, because it's borrowed its heat from something, it does not have heat of its own. The pan, does it have heat of its own? It's very hot, but does it have heat of its own? No, it was not, heat in, uh, it was not hot in the cupboard, now it's on the fire, it's hot. So it has also borrowed heat. It, it, it was cold earlier and it's hot now, it will become cold later. 
it lose what it, what has been borrowed will be lost now the fire under the pan is it hot or cold it's very hot does that heat belong to the fire or is it borrowed and don't say it was borrowed this fire was cold earlier now it's hot it will become cold no as long as the fire lasts it will be very hot it will be hot so as long as the fire lasts it has heat as its property that heat which is the heat of the fire is intrinsic to the fire and its characteristic is it lasts forever that heat which is borrowed comes and goes because it was borrowed only for a time being it will lose it because it, the the object which has borrowed the pan or the water or the potato doesn't have heat of its own so that which stays forever uh is intrinsic to it that which comes and goes is borrowed and lost now supposing here's the question if something borrows existence from something else if something has borrowed existence then what will happen to that thing it will get existence and lose existence something borrows heat it gets heat is hot for a while and then loses it if you can think of borrowing existence then the thing will exist for some time and then go out of existence the sign of borrowing existence is a thing will come into existence exist for a while go out of existence the sign of borrowing heat is a cold thing will become hot for a while and then become cold again in the same way sign of borrowing existence is a thing will come into existence will be born will exist for a while and then again lose it will die being born and dying birth and death are signs of borrowed existence now you may say this is um, hair splitting argumentation but no we see it all the time how the table it has borrowed existence from what from the wood it was wood earlier it exists as a table because it has borrowed existence from the wood one day it will be broken sold as scrap maybe it will still be pieces of wood the table will no longer exist it borrowed existence from its underlying reality from its material cause and it exists as a table because it it is borrowed existence from wood wood has also borrowed existence from a more fundamental form of matter and so on now the question is if something has intrinsic existence what will happen to it fire has intrinsic heat it never loses it if something has intrinsic existence what will happen to it it will never lose existence it will become immortal it will be immortal it will never be born because it always existed it will never die because it will always continue to exist and there is only one thing one thing which we can conceive of in this way at least at least uh, philosophically we can conceive of that is existence itself existence itself and such a concept you have in the upanishads it's called sat sat pure existence being being with a capital b existence itself never goes out of existence things come and go out of existence things borrow their being from pure existence and exist for a while and lose their existence pure existence or being continues to exist because it is intrinsically it has existence it's a very strange way of thinking but that's what's given in the second uh, in the 16th verse of the second chapter of the bhagavad gita and here they are saying 
Atma Nitya. Now you can understand. The self is eternal. Why? The argument given here is because it is pure being. One of the characteristics of the self is I am. I exist. And this is pure being. Existence itself. I am existence itself. Hence, I am eternal. Things borrow their existence from me. And things lose their existence in me. So they are non-eternal. They come and go. The body is one of them. Deha Anitya. The body is definitely non-eternal. It is subject to birth. It is subject to death. Where does it borrow its existence from? The body is made of the five elements. Earth, water, fire, air, space. So their existence is lent to the body. Where do they get their existence from? The Upanishads will show us how all of them borrow their existence from the self, from Atman. Taittiriya Upanishad, Brahmananda Vali, it's there. So, the, let me put it all together. The Atman is said to be eternal because it is existence itself. You say, prove that it is existence itself? That will require a long dialectic. But it can be easily proved. Shankaracharya in his uh, commentary on the 16th verse of the second chapter, he shows that the self is existence itself. And hence, and he had shown it step by step with lot of subtle argumentations, questions, objections, replies, and so on. So we are pure being itself. By that logic, we can never lose our existence. Other things come into existence borrowing their being from us and losing their being again. So they are non-eternal. The body is one of those things which comes into existence, exists for some time, and loses its existence. Why? Because it is asat, not pure being. The Atman, the self, is eternal. Why? Because it is sat, pure being. Tayoraikyam prapashyanti. People speak of the oneness of pure being and, 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 the, uh, and non-being. The most contradictory of things, the eternal and the non-eternal, are taken to be one and the same. Pure being sat, and mithya and appearance, asat, are taken to be one and the same. Kimagyanam matapara. What greater ignorance can there be? The commentator here, so sometimes commentators make it more complicated. They're supposed to make our life easier. So the commentator here ex explains what is eternal and what is non-eternal. Let me give you a give you an uh, sample of that. Atma nityo dhamsa pratiyogi. If I translate that, it will translate into the self is eternal because it is not the counterpositive of destruction. What was that counterpositive of destruction? You see, this is what is called Nabhyanayaya language. Uh, the neologic of India, and it's being India, the, even the neologic is a thousand years old. So it goes like this. When you say destruction, something is destroyed, or say something is absent, you say absence of something, you have to say what is absent. You can't just say he's absent. You'll say, then you, somebody will ask, who is absent? So that which is absent that is called the counter-positive, pratiyogi of absence. When you talk about a phenomenon and you are, have to mention what is it that you are talking about, 
then that thing will be called the counterpositive, pratiyogi. Now, when you say something is eternal, you mean that it is not born, it is not destroyed. It was always existing and it will always exist. So it's something which is not destroyed, never becomes the counterpositive of destruction. If you say it's destroyed, then if you say the, what is destroyed, you say the pot has been destroyed. Then the pot is the counterpositive of destruction. Pot is the counterpositive of its own destruction. What has been destroyed? The pot has been destroyed. Now something that never becomes the counterpositive of destruction is another way of saying it is eternal. You can never speak of the destruction of the Atman. So the Atman is never the pratiyogi or counterpositive of its own destruction. And the body, he says, body is dhamsa dehastu dhamsa pratiyogi. Body is the counterpositive of its own destruction. So body is something that is subject to destruction. That's why I'm saying that commentators sometimes make life more difficult for us because they want to be philosophically precise and therefore they use such, such terms. But these terms developed for a purpose. You see, Navyanaya, the system of neologic, which developed in Mithila and later in, in Bengal, the great teacher of Bhakti, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, Lord Chaitanya, he was a scholar of Navyanaya before he becoming a, a devotee of Krishna. I think he did a good thing to move over from Navyanaya to Krishna. But... <laughs> It developed because of a thousand-year debate, a thousand-year debate, I mean, I'm not exaggerating one bit, from about, um, um, from about 200, 200 uh, BC to 800 AD. Thousand-year debate between the Buddhists and the Hindu dualists, the Nayaikas. And because of this debate, they felt the need for a language which was philosophically precise. Otherwise, ambiguities of language lead to a lot of problems in philosophy. So they developed this extremely sophisticated language. Uh, I think before the development of modern symbolic logic, this was the most sophisticated logical language that was present uh, in human civilization. So they developed this in order to debate, in order to carry on philosophical debates. And it was de developed around 1000 AD, 1100 AD, and by 1200 or 1300, before this commentary was written, it became standard for most philosophical texts. So most philosophical texts, whether they are Nayaika texts or um, um, you know, dualistic texts or non-dualistic texts, all of them are written in this language. Madhusudana Saraswati's extremely difficult work, Advaita Siddhi, is a masterpiece of Navyanaya language. But luckily for us, Shankaracharya predated all this. So Shankaracharya's language is very simple and lucid and direct and powerful. He does not speak about um, counter-positives of destruction. All right. Now I'll take one or two questions and then we'll conclude. Yes, there's a question there. First of all, wait for the microphone. Thanks. Uh, thank you for tonight. Um, but I just have a quick... Uh, I'm a little confused. Um, we're talking about consciousness being eternal and yes. we're all here and we all experience consciousness somewhat individually. Yes. And I just have a question as to where does personality come into, like individual personality come into because there's relating to some people easily 
relating to some other people, not so easily. Oh, right. Um, where does that go on that continuum? Thank you. I, I understand. And it's a good question to ask. We must remember certain fundamentals here. The Vedantic view of the, of the human being, of us, is trichotomous, threefold. One is the physical body. The second one is what is called the subtle body. Within us, we have thoughts, feelings, emotions, ideas, memories. All of this together is what we call the personality, the human personality. Your likes and dislikes, your memories, your sense of, of uh, a personal identity. That's your personality. And everybody, it's distinct. Now, Vedanta says consciousness, the self, is actually distinct from this personality. That's the interesting thing to understand. Why would you ever say such a thing? You see, our general idea, idea of consciousness is thoughts, feelings, emotions, this is consciousness. This is what we think is consciousness. And that's how consciousness is generally understood. Vedanta takes a, makes a huge step forward or a claim that consciousness in itself must be distinguished from the contents of consciousness. Pure consciousness is what they call the self, the knower. Anything that you are aware of is an object of consciousness. And they say that's, that's how we live life, that's how we experience it. Your likes and dislikes, your preferences, whether you like this kind of Starbucks coffee or that kind of coffee, that's a preference and that's part of your personality. Now are you or are you not aware of it? And I must admit that I'm aware of it. If you're aware of it, it's an object to your consciousness. Just as this is an object, it's a public object, we all share this object, we see it. Your likes and dislikes, your memories are your private objects, but they are objects nevertheless. Why? For the simple reason you are aware of them. Anything that we are aware of is an object of, object of or object to consciousness. Consciousness is that like light which shines upon it. The light within you shines upon your likes and dislikes, your memories, your thoughts, your feelings what you call your personality. What, so Vedanta would call that the personality. The personality is an object to the real self. The personality and the self are not the same. The self is identified in Vedanta with pure consciousness. But yes, in our present state of ignorance, we identify the self with the personality. When I say I am this person, I identify myself with my memories, my thoughts, my feelings, my ideas, my preferences, my likes and dislikes, my choices, this is what I think I am. And this is what we call the personality. Now Vedanta wants me to see that this personality is also something different from the consciousness which is at the core of myself. In fact, it's very interesting to reflect upon the roots of the word personality. It comes from those, that, that original root is a personae. The original Greek meaning of the root was mask. It was mask. The actors used to go on stage, put on these big masks and masks and uh, cry out, shout out their, their lines. So those masks were called the personae. And that's, from, that's where we have got the word personality. And now we think that personality is me. I am the per this person. But Vedanta, I think stands closer to the original meaning of the root of the root meaning of the word personality. The personality is also a mask which we put upon the real me. So I, the real I, am not the ego. The real I, am not even this little person. I am the 
pure consciousness shining through and operating this little person. Yes. Question here. Uh, Swami, uh, when you talk about the difference between the, the knower and consciousness, uh, and so you use the analogy, okay, I stub my toe, I know it hurts. Yeah. But that doesn't mean much. There's no plus or minus to the consciousness. It's just observing. Yes. Uh, or awareness. Okay, let's take um, uh, spiritual uh, practice and transcendence. Yes. As we go, say, into a level of, say, for those that can go into a deep samadhi. Yes. Are they getting to an elevated knower or are they tapping into consciousness? And if they are tapping into consciousness, it seems like they're, what they talk about of the experience doesn't have much to do with connecting to the knower. Right. So when we, go, when we talk about a samadhi, spiritual practice, not our ordinary experience, but spiritual practice giving rise to certain extraordinary experiences. The whole point of samadhi, if we go to the root text, Patanjali Yoga Sutras, the whole point of samadhi is to let us appreciate this fact that I am consciousness, the witness of the mind and body. Samadhi is not in consciousness, is, is not a function of consciousness. It does not enable you to tap into consciousness any more than we are doing now. Rather, samadhi is a function of the mind. Samadhi is entirely in the mind. All kinds of knowing, perceiving, feeling are entirely in the mind. But the mind uses consciousness, or consciousness uses the mind to illumine these experiences. A mind on spiritual practice. <laughs> yes. I'll make a distinction between the two. So, um, in fact, the Yoga Sutras, which are the, which is the book or the manual of Samadhi par excellence, it says the whole purpose of Samadhi is that in Samadhi, the third sutra says, Tada drashtu swarupi avasthanam. The witness consciousness is then perceived in its real nature. Is appreciated. Even perceived is a, within quotes. Is appreciated in its real nature. Otherwise what happens? Vritti sarupya mitratta, the fourth sutra, says that if in normal ways of functioning and knowing, consciousness and the personality are mixed up into one thing. We do not distinguish them normally. So, angry, I am angry. I do not say I am consciousness illumining the feeling of anger in my mind. I don't feel that, but that's, but that's a fact. That's what's happening, but I, I identify the two. So that's what normally happens, and samadhi helps us to appreciate the difference between the two. But samadhi is also in the mind. Samadhi is not something to do with consciousness. Consciousness, that consciousness illumines the mind on samadhi, illumines the mind in worldly activities. The same unchanging consciousness. Yes. There's a question there. I'll come to you first. Sumi. Swami, I'd like you to go over the first point that started this whole uh, train of thought when you were talking about the experiencer who is aware of transitions and uh, including the ultimate transition of the body from life to death. Yes. Um, 
could you go over that again? Because you made, uh, arrived at a conclusion from there. I would like you to go over that again. All right. Um, the transitions from birth to death, all of them are known by us, by the consciousness. It's an, it's an experience in consciousness. So death, if it is an experience, again it must be in consciousness. And hence, well, here is a logic which will sound very dubious to a materialist. Because from a materialist point of view, consciousness is something that's being generated by my brain. So if the brain falls apart, there's no consciousness. Maybe up to the point the brain collapses, the consciousness can experience its imminent demise. But then after that, there's no consciousness. But Vedanta tells us, what is your experience right now? Not what, what you know from books or documentaries. What you experience right now is things in consciousness. A body, call it consciousness, call it awareness, call it knowledge. The body exists in your knowledge. Even the brain exists in your consciousness. Not the other way around. We do not experience a brain generating consciousness. That's an objective way of looking at it. But my experience right now is body and mind in consciousness. So whatever happens to the body and mind, whether it is growing from teenage to middle age to old age, or it is dying, it must continue to be experienced in consciousness. And hence, death is also an object, an objective fact for consciousness. The experiencer and the experience must be apart. Death is of the body and it's a transition for the mind. The Hindu or Buddhist way of looking at it is the subtle body moves from body to body. Physical body dies, the subtle body moves to the next body or the next life. But consciousness is the witness for both of them, the death of the physical body and the transmigration of the subtle body. That is death. But doesn't that make huge uh, presuppositions um, when we at all times insist that this light of lights yes. is absolutely untouched yes. by anything that happens. It witnesses it, it illumines it, it allows itself to be borrowed yes. by things that seem to absorb it and confuse it with the undivided self. Yes. So when this stands alone at all times, yes. how does this borrowed consciousness then have a license to go on to another life form when really everything only is illumined for the moment. There is no continuity guaranteed to tables, chairs, stars, um, the whole pla uh, planetary systems. Why should there be this continuity guaranteed or presupposed will exist. Isn't that part of a cultural context? Could be, but the thing is, this whole idea that this is a very radical uh, way of looking at it, very, uh, that's that, why you said it's a great presumption to make, and there are huge assumptions under this. This only comes from our way of looking at it. You see, we have been taught a materialist, reductionist, physicalist approach to life which actually does not tally with our 
um, what I might call a phenomenological view of life. We do not experience ourselves as bodies producing consciousness. Rather, look at the experience. Our experience from moment to moment is bodies in our consciousness. Think about it. What comes first in our experience, consciousness or the body? Consciousness. Without, we do not, when we are unconscious, we do not experience ourselves as uh, I am a body without consciousness now. No. We experience as ourselves as experiencing blankness. That's what we call unconsciousness. But something is experiencing the blankness. So, Advaita actually makes a pretty bold claim that it is more true to experience than anything else. It's going entirely from experience. But what is troublesome yeah. is assuming that there is a continuity in only in existence only at this level, at the, on this wavelength. It, it is not granted, as I said, to other physical objects. And we have identified the mind and the body really as physical objects ultimately. Yes. When this continuity will not be granted to any other physical object, why is it granted only to this one? Isn't it a peculiarly cultural way of looking at it? Because if you look at mystics from other traditions, yes, they don't fall in line with this. Oh, all of them do. Think of, of one one mystic who says everything ends at death. Not but, one. Yes, but then we. You see, the reason is religion and spirituality could not exist without a post-mortem existence. So, uh, whether crude or sophisticated. Mm -hmm. A certain amount of postmodern existence must be granted for any kind of religion or mysticism or spirituality to exist. So, I will make the claim here that every religion, every mystic, every spiritual teacher anywhere must admit a kind of postmodern existence to some entity, even a Buddhist. But then Buddhists come out of the same matrix, so you one can't really make a separate argument for them. Because they come out of the same cultural continuum. I understand. But you take something that may be a, a Mayan or an Inca, Inca or some, mm -hmm. any human uh, civilization mm -hmm. or even pre-civilization, uh, you know, isolated tribes, mm -hmm. their basic idea of religion or spirit worship or whatever, the most primitive thing is also something that survives death. But we attach to it a whole elaborate apparatus of karma and so on which really is a refinement upon an assumption. Is it an assumption? That's the thing they're saying. How is it an assumption? It seems to be an assumption from our vantage point of view. Right? Mm -hmm. But we have never experienced the death of consciousness. If you look at the Abrahamic traditions, yes. upon the cessation of the body, yes. they go to a finite place, which who, is who heaven. Go, who goes? Uh, they would call it the soul. Okay. Here you have a continuity after the body. Right. And it is only given at this particular wavelength. Do animals get it? Do stars get it? Uh, do other biological entities get it? No. That might be a limitation of a particular thought system. But what I'm saying is look at the basic commonality. There is something that survives death. You see? I guess Hinduism adds on a lot of accretions 
that finally make for a little confusion because when you talk of an entity that is so totally separate that it shines upon a putrefying body and an illumined saint, similarly, it has a grand ethos. And then you okay. somehow tack on. We can, we can uh, discuss that later, yes. Okay. Can, should we take one more question or we have just run out of time? Yeah, you have a question, yes. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. I'm wondering, does the consciousness actually make decisions about what to be aware of? No. Or, or okay. It's a choiceless awareness. Does it make decisions? All decisions are at the level of the mind. To do this or not to do this, intentionality comes in at the level of the mind. Very uh, concept of pure consciousness, in philosophical language it would be called non-intentional uh, consciousness. It is not a consciousness about anything. When things come up, it's like light. Light doesn't decide what to um, focus on. You can focus the light on something. It shines. And because of that, everything is revealed. Decisions will come in your mind. Yeah. Well, what about two people walking into the same room and being aware of completely different things? Yes. Their consciousness is not making a decision about what to see? No, the mind is. The mind is. The deciding. mind is. And, and again, I would invite you to see that I'm just repeating a fact. Look inward and see what makes the decision. In two cases, the minds make the decision. Here is one mind which wants to look at this painting. Here is another mind which wants to look at that painting. You can see the thought process. I like this artist and okay, I'll look at this painting. That's a thought. Where is that? Not in consciousness. Not, that's not consciousness itself. That's the mind. How do you know it's the mind and not consciousness? Because you are aware of the thought. It's an object. It focused the consciousness on that painting. And in this guy's case, his mind focused the consciousness there on that other painting. And that decision was made in the mind. So personality, likes and dislikes are all in the mind. And consciousness is common to all, everybody as one unchanging and it's featureless. All features are in the mind and the body. Okay, shall we wrap it up now? We have gone over time, but good. It keeps the debate up. Om Shanti 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 Hare Om Tat Sat Shri Ram Krishna Rupanamastu